0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Internist's Guide 2, a limited series dedicated to high-yield guidelines in internal medicine. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Lori Albert about the American College Rheumatology guideline, The Management of Gout, released in 2020. Dr. Lori Albert is a rheumatologist at University Health Network in Toronto and Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto. In her career as a clinician educator, she's focused mainly on undergraduate medical education and curriculum development but in recent years has moved into the faculty development arena. She currently serves as Deputy Physician-in-Chief for Faculty Development, Department of Medicine, University Health Network. She's the Education Lead for the Schroeder Arthritis Institute at University Health Network, and is the Chair of the Teaching Effectiveness Committee for Senior Promotions for the Department of Medicine, U of T. Dr. Albert is also the editor of the Rheumatology Handbook for Clinicians. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Albert. Hi, good afternoon, thank you. So we're really excited to talk with you about gout today, and I'm hoping you can start us off by, you know, talking a little bit about yourself and telling us how gout is part of your day to day practice.
1: Thanks very much, Catherine. Um, As you mentioned already, I'm a rheumatologist at UHN. I was educated in Toronto and my academic work has been in education and teaching, mainly in undergraduate uh, and more recently in faculty development. I end up seeing a lot of patients with gout, typically because a lot of primary care physicians aren't that comfortable with the diagnosis and management. And there are a lot of really complex patients that we see, especially in the teaching hospitals. So they're not really always textbook cases and there's a lot of nuances to their management. And so primary care physicians really aren't very comfortable um, kind of figuring out what to do with those folks.
0: So, you know what? We've already said the word gout, but
1: can you tell us a little bit more about what gout actually is? Well, gout is an inflammatory arthritis, and it's actually the most common form of inflammatory arthritis. And it's triggered by the presence of crystals of monosodium urate in and around the joint. And you have to have hyperuricemia in order to have gout, but hyperuricemia isn't sufficient to cause gout. And we don't really know why there are so many patients who can have hyperuricemia, but never actually develop gout. So there is something that happens in in some people, we don't really know why, uh, where not only do they have hyperuricemia, but they form crystals in their joints. And they're the patients who end up um, showing up with these very intensely inflammatory episodes in a joint.
0: So what exactly does a gout
1: flare usually look like? Well, I think most of us have seen that classic, you know, intense inflammation in the first MTP joint of the foot. And and as you probably have seen, uh, you know that it's very acute in onset, often occurs overnight and it's just exquisitely painful. So patients often describe they can't even let the sheet touch it. And it's actually really helpful to hear that story from people because you don't hear that with really anything else. So typically, it's associated with that redness, the warmth, and the swelling. And very often, what we see in gout is a pseudocellulitis. So there's this redness that kind of extends beyond the joint um, that can be look concerning for a septic arthritis, but it's really classic for gout. We will often also see some secondary desquamation of the skin, and that's a really classic feature in an attack that's been going on for a few days. So sometimes that's really helpful when the patient comes in with a more prolonged episode and you're wondering, is this infection? That can be a clue that might push you towards gout. We talk a lot about the foot because it um, classically involves the first MTP, but we see lots of patients who come in with midfoot gout and often with that pseudocellulitis in the midfoot. So think out when you see that. And you can also see gout occurring in the upper extremities. More often in patients who've had gout on and off, so it's more of a chronic condition for them. And the other group to consider are older women. So women only tend to get gout after the menopause. But if you see these older women who come in with something intensely inflammatory uh, in their hand or their wrist, it can often be gout. And those Uh, Gout flares sometimes occur in a a hebertins node from their osteoarthritis, so that can be quite confusing. So again, the main differential is septic arthritis uh, when it's acute, and when gout becomes more chronic and polyarticular, it can actually look like rheumatoid arthritis. So the longer people have gout, the more they can start to develop these kind of chronic joints and chronic thickening and swelling. So when you see someone where you're not quite sure, a good thing to do is to look for the that develop as a result of hyperuricemia over years and sometimes the clue is just palpating the elbow where you'll feel a big tophus inside the olecranon bursa. It's a great place to check and you'll sometimes see them on the digits of the toes. So in those more chronic patients or even someone who's coming with an acute flare you might want to just look around and see if you can see tophi that tell you that their hyperuricemia has been present for many years.
0: Okay, so you know, as you said, gout involves higher urate levels in the blood. So, what are the indications for starting urate-lowering therapy?
1: Well, it's really important to recognize that hyperuricemia on its own should not be treated because studies have shown that if you follow these patients over time, the majority will not go on to develop gout. So, you're exposing people to the risks of therapy without any potential benefit. So, The most recent American College of Rheumatology Gout guidelines suggest that the strong indications for treatment, and that's strong based on good evidence and based on the input of patients in their voting panels, um, the indications for treatment would be patients who have evidence of very high gout burden, so that would be people who have TOFI already, so that's subcutaneous collections of monosodium urate. People who have radiographic damage in their joints, so you've done an x-ray and you see that there are erosions related to gout, or people who are having a lot of gout activity that's defined by frequent gout flares, so that means two or more attacks a year. So those are what they consider to be strong recommendations for urate-lowering therapy. There are some patients who have less frequent flares, so they may have two or fewer flares per year. And these here provides a conditional recommendation for treating those patients. Those are the patients where you really want to have a discussion. Is it worth it to that person to not have a very painful attack of gout? Or are they more concerned about having side effects of medication? And for those patients, things that might prompt you to push a little harder for treatment would be patients who have comorbidities like chronic kidney disease greater than stage 3 or very high serum urate levels like over 530 550. And then finally the ACR conditionally recommends treatment for people who have presented with their first attack of gout but have underlying CKD stage grade 3 or greater, uh, monosodium urate higher than about 540 or so, or people who have kidney stones. So I think the important point there is we don't treat patients who have isolated hyperuricemia without gout. We generally don't treat after a first flare of gout unless there are these comorbidities, very high urate levels. And when attacks become more frequent, that's the time when most of us would see these patients and want to initiate therapy. And then if we see that they actually have damage or have a high urate burden in the body, then it's time to treat them.
0: Let's say we see one of these patients who meets, you know, one of these criteria for urate lowering therapy. What are our actual options if we we want to start a medication and how do the different drugs work?
1: So, you know, there used to be more drugs available in Canada and we're actually now really restricted to the group of drugs that are called xanthine oxidase inhibitors. So xanthine oxidase is an enzyme that is important in the catabolism of our purine nucleic acids. And it's sort of, they they catalyze the very last step that converts xanthine oxidase into uric acid. Um, so we have these drugs that are inhibitors of that enzyme, and there's two that are available, allopurinol and febuxostat. I'll just step aside for a second to mention that there are also drugs that help to increase the excretion of uric acid through the kidney. Those are called uricose uric drugs. But those drugs have been taken away from the market in Canada for reasons that I don't really understand, but you can't get them here anymore. So we are really restricted to using these xanthine oxidase inhibitors, which are very effective and relatively safe urate lowering therapy. The guidelines of the American culture of rheumatology suggest that every patient be started with allopurinol as the first urate lowering treatment. And that's true also for patients who have chronic kidney disease. So there's a lot of concern among clinicians, I think, based on some older studies, that maybe allopurinol is toxic to the kidney. Even some nephrologists seem to be uncomfortable with using it. But the studies that the ACR called on really did not reflect that there was toxicity of allopurinol with respect to the kidneys. And even in patients with chronic kidney disease, You can really maximize the dose of allopurinol, which can go as high as 800 milligrams per day in a patient who doesn't have any kidney disease, and perhaps a little bit less than that in someone who does. The one thing that you should know, however, is that the really serious side effect of allopurinol that we do worry about is allopurinol hypersensitivity. And that can be anything from a mild rash to elevated liver enzymes to really severe multi-system inflammatory reaction with renal failure and hepatic failure and vasculitis. So patients who have a certain genetic background are actually at very increased risk of developing allopurinal hypersensitivity. So, it is recommended through the ACR guidelines that we screen certain patients for that genetic subtype, which is an HLA B5801. And the patients who are at highest risk for that are Han Chinese, Korean, and Thai patients, so Southeast Asian patients. And they also recommend African American patients. But other patients should not be tested because there is a low incidence of HLA B5801 in some other populations. But it doesn't seem to have the same risk for allopurinol hypersensitivity in some of those other populations. So the guidelines are quite clear about who should be screened for, for B5801. And if they're positive, then you should avoid allopurinol in those patients and start with febuxostat.
0: Okay, very interesting. Once you've decided you're going to start urate lowering therapy, most likely allopurinol, as we've discussed, what are the rules about when you can start it, specifically in relation to a gout flare?
1: Right. So it's a really good question. So for most of my career, (laughs) based on prior guidelines, I've always been um, reluctant to start allopurinol when someone is having an active gout attack, a flare. And what I've seen in practice is that sometimes if patients have a flare and you start allopurinol, you can actually worsen or prolong the attack. And the reason for that is that any change in the level of uric acid, whether it's going up because of some dietary intake or whether it's dropping because of therapy can actually provoke a gout attack. And as we'll talk about, when you start gout therapy, you do have to prophylax people against gout attacks. So the risk is that if they're in an attack and you start allopurinol, that that urate lowering may actually prolong or worsen the attack. But in their review of this topic with the voting panel, they felt that based on, on their research and the studies that were available, that the absolute risk of that is actually fairly low. And the higher risk is that you've got a patient who's a captive audience who really wants to have treatment for this terrible, painful disease, and they're more likely to actually be adherent to their urate lowering therapy when you started in the middle of the attack, because they believe that it will help them to, you know, rid themselves of this, this awful condition. And so they do recommend that you can start once the attack is controlled and not wait a few weeks, which is what we previously have done. That's an interesting shift in practice.
0: So if you have a patient who you've started medications for gout, what's the role for measuring serum urate levels when it comes to following the pharmacotherapy?
1: Okay, so this is a really important point. So the first rule is that you want to start the allopurinol at a low dose, because starting at a low dose, um, A reduces the chance of uh, allopurinol hypersensitivity, um, or at least you will be able to detect it early before it becomes significant. And it also helps to reduce the incidence of flares while you're starting urate-lowering therapy. The second principle is that you want to aim for a target urate level. And the ACR recommends a target urate level at about 350 micromoles per liter. So what you want to do is to start the patient on 100 milligrams or less of allopurinol. For people with chronic kidney disease, you want to start in the lower range, maybe around 50. And then check their urate levels somewhere between two and four weeks after you've started treatment. Then based on their response and also screening the blood work to make sure there's no signs of allopurinol hypersensitivity, then you can adjust the dose and you increase by 50 milligrams or 100 milligrams at a time, recheck the urate level in two to four weeks, and adjust the allopurinol that way until you've reached your target at about 350. The current ACR guidelines recommend that target of 350. In the older guidelines, they had actually recommended uh, lower levels like 300 for patients who have TOFI. But they chose not to comment on that in this set of guidelines, because there's not really enough evidence to suggest that lower urate levels will, are better for allowing TOFI to resolve. So a lot of us who kind of grew up on other guidelines still tend to aim for lower urate levels for our patients with TOFI. And what the ACR says in their current guidelines are that this is a discussion that you can have with patients based on how burdensome their gout is. So how much they have in the way of TOFI, how frequent are their attacks, how disabled they are by gout. And so you, the clinician and the patient have some freedom to aim for lower targets if they feel that's appropriate. But in general, the target is 350.
0: This next question we've kind of already talked about just in terms of the medication options. So if you have a patient who's still having flares or not meeting their urate targets on you know your first line therapy, do you switch or do you add on when it comes to other gout meds?
1: Right. If you're starting with allopurinol, again, one of the good reasons for starting allopurinol is you can go as high as 800 milligrams per day to get the urate under control. And it sounds really scary because people always feel that they can't do more than two or 300, but I have lots of patients where we have to go that high. So it's unusual to have a patient who can't get a good target urate at that dose. But then there might be a patient who starts to have some kind of a reaction like a rash or their liver enzymes go up and you have to stop it. So you can just switch from allopurinol to febuxostat. And I've had people where on, you know, five or 600 milligrams of allopurinol, nothing was happening and we put them on febuxostat, and suddenly the uric was controlled. So that's certainly an option. I think if people are not controlled on allopurinol, as long as they're not having a reaction, you always want to explore if they're being adherent to therapy. Sometimes if they're doing quite well, but not well enough, we might, for example, see if we can change an antihypertensive agent to Losartan. We might want to look at an SGLT2 inhibitor if it's being prescribed for other reasons, might help manage the urate level. Uh, So sometimes adding things can help, but we no longer have the option in Canada of adding a uricose uric to allopurinol, which is what we used to do if someone wasn't doing well in allopurinol. So now if they're adherent, if you've dosed them pretty well and they're not responding, then you go directly to febuxostat as your next option.
0: What's the role of anti-inflammatories in gout?
1: So there are really two things. When you think about gout management, you really want to divide it into the management of acute attacks and then the prophylaxis of attacks or the treatment of tophaceous gout or damage, as we've already mentioned. When you're starting therapy uh, for gout, when you've made that decision, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you always want to start people on some kind of anti-inflammatory therapy at the same time, because as their urate level starts to drop, they're at very high risk for having a gout flare, even if you start them on a low dose. Presuming they don't have any other comorbidities, really any of the anti inflammatory therapies are a good choice. And our anti inflammatory therapies for gout are NSAIDs, colchicine, and glucocorticoids. Now, we often use colchicine when we're starting allopurinol because it's really good at preventing gout flares. So, daily colchicine dosing uh, along with allopurinol is usually how we'll start allopurinol if there's no contraindications. And the colchicine is continued for somewhere between three and six months and then discontinued. And the general approach is to have a pill in the pocket, meaning that when the patient knows that a flare is starting to happen, they can take their NSAID or their glucocorticoid to manage that flare. The beauty of the colchicine is that it tends to prevent those flares from occurring. So rather than being reactive to a flare, it's actually preventing flares from occurring as you initiate urate-lowering therapy. The other time when you wanna use anti-inflammatories is when someone presents with their first attack or if they're having infrequent gout attacks, um, you want to use anti-inflammatory therapy. And again, the same choices are available. Colchicine is a very good drug, but you have to use it very early. So really within the first day of an attack. And the protocol that's recommended is a low-dose protocol for colchicine, which came from the AGREE trial and it's 1.2 milligrams of colchicine followed by 0.6 milligrams an hour later and then 0.6 milligrams BID until the gout flare resolves. For other patients NSAIDs might be a better approach and typically when people come to the emergency department they're given NSAIDs to manage their acute flare. And for many patients glucocorticoids are a really good option if we can't use NSAIDs or colchicine or if the attack has been going on for a little while. You can also do intraarticular corticosteroids if the patient has an easy to access joint and you're sure that it's gout and not infection. You can inject the joint with steroid and they get better very rapidly. Um, but that's if you're comfortable doing joint injections and you're in the right setting where you can do that. And the new kid on the block is anti IL-1 therapy, which is anakinra. So the intense inflammation in gout is actually very largely driven by the cytokine IL-1 which is one of the cytokines associated with your innate immune system. And it was shown that an IL-1 blockade can stop an acute gout attack. It's really hard to get in Canada. (laughs) And so I wouldn't recommend that you try that. I think we have other options that uh, are good enough to manage an acute attack of gout. And I guess the other thing you have to remember is acute gout is not fatal. So if you've got a patient who's just got a lot of other comorbidities in the ICU, sometimes you just have to manage the pain and the gout attack will settle down.
0: So if you can't use colgacine, what kind of dose are you using for, let's say, NSAIDs? And for how long are you prescribing the
1: NSAIDs? Mm. So for NSAIDs, you really just want to use a full dose of any anti-inflammatory. And you have to usually treat for anywhere from five to 10 days. You know, some people have very short-lived gout attacks and some people have quite prolonged attacks. And often if the patient's gout has become chronic and they're not on urate-lowering therapy, their attacks can start to become a little more difficult to control. In terms of steroids, so typically we would use prednisone if the patient's able to take oral medications. And you don't have to go super high. So often 15 milligrams, one, five milligrams is enough. For some with a really bad flare or maybe a couple of joints, you might go as high as 20 or 25 milligrams. But the one thing about using glucocorticoids is that sometimes if you taper them too rapidly, after you discontinue it, the patient will have a recrudescence of the flare, um, which is really horrible. (laughs) So the kind of protocol, which is not evidence-based, that we use, is to use your starting dose of so somewhere between 15 and 25 milligrams daily for about three to four days, at which point they should be feeling significantly better. And then you reduce by five milligrams every three to four days until they're off the steroid. So that takes them somewhere between 10 days and two weeks. And usually if you do that slow taper, they will not have a recrudescence.
0: Thank you. That was very helpful. So jumping back to talking about our medications for urate-lowering therapy, how Mm -hmm. long do you typically keep patients on that type of therapy?
1: Right. So people who are predisposed to gout will likely have that predisposition throughout their lives. Unless there was a particular reason, for example, drugs or kidney disease that then was corrected or treated with dialysis. But most people who have primary gout have some kind of underlying genetic abnormality in their urate clearance and whatever other factors predispose them to developing crystalline disease. So the truth is that if you stop their urate lowering therapy, at some point, most likely the gout will return. However, the ACR does recommend conditionally that you carry on gout therapy indefinitely. But within that conditional recommendation is the suggestion that if patients have been very stable for a period of time and they really want to stop their therapy, they should be allowed to stop their therapy, understanding that as the urate level rises, they may be at risk for gout again. And if you follow those patients over time, there's a small percentage who will not go on to develop occurrence of gout, but the majority likely will. Certainly for patients who have tophaceous gout, though who, you know, really are getting a lot of tissue and joint damage because of the high burden of uric acid, I would really strongly encourage those patients not to stop their therapy. For someone who was just having frequent attacks but never had TOFI, you can feel a little more comfortable that they're not going to get into serious trouble if they stop it. Gotcha. Okay.
0: Now, you've mentioned other medications which can be helpful for gout, so Losartan or maybe SGLT2 inhibitors, but I'm wondering about if there's any other recommendations for medications which can be helpful either to start or to stop in patients with gout.
1: Um, Really, there aren't um, a lot of other recommendations. If you can avoid hydrochlorothiazide, for example, that might be helpful. there are other drugs which tend to provoke gout like cyclosporin or, you know, furosemide. Like often people need those drugs for their underlying disease. So there's really not very much that you can do about that. I'll just say that the ACR guidelines are quite clear that you should not stop low-dose aspirin if the patient requires it, even though low-dose aspirin can potentially provoke gout. Of course, the feeling is if they have a medical reason for being on it, you should not stop it. So that's one that we shouldn't change. I'll just add that the one other one that they do specifically address in the guidelines is it's conditionally recommended against um, adding or switching cholesterol-lowering agents to phenofibrate. Uh, that's a drug that may help to lower urate levels, but because of the potential toxicity, the guidelines panel did not feel strongly that we should choose to put people on that particular lipid-lowering agent.
0: Okay, that makes sense. So we've talked extensively about medications. I'm wondering about non pharmacologic therapy. So, what lifestyle modifications are recommended for patients with gout?
1: And it's a really good question. And I was really pleased that the ACR addressed this in their recommendations this time. So, regardless of disease activity, they do recommend conditionally that patients limit their alcohol intake, limit their intake of purines. So mostly we think about things like red meat, seafood, and organ meats. And a very important one that a lot of people aren't aware of is that patients need to limit high fructose corn syrup because it actually gets converted into uric acid. And so the commonest source is sugar, sweetened soft drinks. Um, but also people often drink fruit juices because they think, oh, fruit juices are really good for me. Well, they're high in fructose. So that's also a problem. And all the processed foods that we eat, like if you look at the boxes on the shelf in your cupboard, it's actually quite distressing. (laughs) The cookies, the cereals, the crackers all have uh, high fructose corn syrup. So, you know, as a general recommendation for everybody, avoiding processed food, of course, is really important. But we particularly want to make that point with patients who suffer with gout. Um, The ACR also recommends weight loss for patients who are overweight or obese. And I think it's really important that we don't blame patients who are, are overweight for their gout, but we try to encourage them that weight loss will help with managing their condition. And, and it doesn't really matter which kind of weight loss regimen you want, whatever the patient you know, w- w- is interested in doing is certainly worthwhile. Um, but we know that uh, obesity is associated with a higher risk of incident gout. And that reducing the BMI by 5% or more was associated with a 40% lower risk of recurrent flares. And so that's really, I think, valuable for people to think about when they've been dealing with this really painful condition.
0: And all these recommendations for lifestyle modification, are they shown to reduce flares or do they lower the urate or or what is it that they're particularly helpful with?
1: Yeah, most of them are, are helpful for reducing urate. The high fructose corn syrup, the purines may help to reduce flares because we know sometimes that when people ingest those things that they get a rise in their urate level and that, of course, can provoke an attack of gout. So, you know, we've covered
0: a lot of ground. Thank you so much for all of the information. I'm hoping we can kind of round out the conversation. I'd love to hear what are your top five takeaways for the gout guidelines.
1: Okay. So, the first one is that there are strong recommendations for treatment for patients who have evidence of TOFI, radiographic damage, or frequent flares. So, that's two or more flares per year. Okay, so that's the strong recommendations for treatment, which is urate lowering therapy. Conditionally, they recommend treatment if you have a first flare with underlying CKD, so grade three or worse, stones, or very high serum urate levels, so somewhere in the 500s. And similarly, patients have less frequent flares. So you don't have to feel obligated to treat after the first flare, but if there are these concomitant conditions and you want to think about it. The second takeaway I would say is that the timing of initiation of therapy can be during a flare. The third is that allopurinol is really recommended as the first line urate lowering therapy, even if the patient has chronic kidney disease. The fourth I would say is that you should check for HLA-B5801 in the appropriate groups. And finally, the last one is start low with your allopurinol or your urate lowering therapies and continue anti-inflammatory prophylaxis for three months and then treat to target.
0: That's great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate hearing your expertise and and having you walk us through the gout guidelines. Pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you for listening to this episode on the American Rheumatology Society Guideline for the Management of Gout, released in 2020. Special thanks to Dr. Lori Albert for joining us today to discuss these guidelines. This episode was recorded by Catherine Luer and produced by Allison Lai. The Internist's Guide to Podcast series is produced by Catherine Luer and Shaliza Halani. Executive producers are Allison Lai, Zara Morali, and Leia Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Visanthamohan. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you again soon.